union with Christ, a doctrine that is kind of under-discussed, but its importance is really difficult to over-emphasize. Uh, I mean, it is tremendous, and that is going to be the burden of our time together this morning. All six of us here are going to look at the doctrine of union with Christ, and we are going to justify the rest of this series and kind of do an intro and an overview to the doctrine. And I, if I accomplish the effect of going, whoa, okay, there's a lot here. Like, there's a lot here. There's a lot of implications here. There's a lot of text here. And just kind of uh, 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 situate us, I think I will accomplish our goal for this morning. But let's go to the Lord in prayer. Yes. Like every other week? Huh. Huh. In what sense, particularly? <laughs> Which part of every other week? Anyways, okay. Let's, uh, let's pray, and then we will we'll get into it. Lord Jesus, we, we're thankful to gather again. We're thankful to gather with the saints. Uh, thankful for the crisp air and breath in our lungs that allows us to pour out praise to you. Lord, as we start a new series and we talk about union with Christ, I pray this would be deeply meaningful, deeply uh, practical for people. Um, that it would be encouraging and that people would read, especially the New Testament and Paul's letters, even through a different lens in light of this particular doctrine. And so we pray that you would help, uh, give us help as we study it, give us uh, humility and grace as we apply it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so, so who's heard of the doctrine of union with Christ? Just a show of hands. A couple folks, union with Christ. Okay, a couple folks. What do you, uh, let's just hear, what do you know about union with Christ? What is it? What's union with Christ? What would you say if someone asked? What's union with Christ? There's not, come on, don't everyone be all shy and everything. You don't have to have like the, it's a lot, it could mean maybe you could describe it in a lot of ways. Let's just tell, tell me what you know about union with Christ. Yeah, Christian. I'm sorry? It, it, it ref, okay, so it referenced, so certainly that's part of it. The reference, uh, reference to the Holy Spirit being in us in a certain way. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay, so we're co heirs. We're co heirs with Christ because he's an elder brother. That's going to factor into it, certainly. Yeah. Yeah, Joe, what do you have about union with Christ? Okay. Okay, certainly, certainly. We'll, talk, we'll get to that a little bit later today. One with union with Christ, like the Christ united to the church compared to man and a woman united in marriage. We're being built up together in Christ, certainly. Yeah, yeah, really good. What, what else about union with Christ? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. So Adam's fate bound up with condemnation. Our fate is because we are we have this doctrine of union with Christ. Our fate is bound up with Christ. And so in one sense, what could be said of Christ or what is promised to Christ or us through Christ? You know, uh, uh, you know, kind of we get to tag along, you might say, with, and get the benefits of, of Jesus because we are united with him. We are stuck to him in some kind of a way and therefore get some of the the benefits. Well, let me ask you, why does, this is a similar question, but, but why do you think the doctrine of union with Christ in particular matters? So Glenn gave one, that, an answer that probably could apply to this one as well. Why does it matter in particular? Yes, sir. Okay, so for united with Christ, a union with Christ has implications for things like perseverance of the saints and personal assurance even, okay? 
What else? Why else does union with Christ from what you know about it? What practical implication? What does it matter? Yeah. Okay. And so, so union with Christ in one sense fits us for divine presence by being divine presence. Very good. Very good. What else? Why does union with Christ matter practically coming out in the wash? Yes, sir. Okay. So we're crucified with Christ. And what does that mean? Yeah. Okay, so whatever we figure out what, what union with Christ means specifically, um, we, we, have, we have died a death uh, through Christ, right, to sin, and we are ra then raised to life through his resurrection, something like that, right? And I no longer live, but it's Christ who lives in me, okay? Yeah, good. Anything else about what follows from your understanding of union with Christ? Okay. Let me ask just one more question here. What, what do you, as far as kind of what we've heard, we heard some really good things. What do you think union with Christ has to do with sanctification, the process of becoming more like Christ, growing in holiness throughout the Christian life? How does union with Christ affect that? What'd you say? Any ideas? Okay, yeah, yeah, and so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's correct, and so so how does the doctrine itself inform how we have that progressive sanctification? What do you think? Sure, yeah. So um, we've heard about what what you know, some well certainly some of what union with Christ is, and maybe why it matters. What role does it play in becoming more holy in the run of life? Becoming holier. In the run of life. All right, so maybe we'll maybe we'll come back to that one. Maybe we'll come back to that one. What does union with Christ have to do not just with my identity or my ultimate salvation, but how does union with Christ contribute to how I think of becoming uh, pure and becoming holy in this life. So in this mini-series, I want to explore this doctrine. Now, some people believe this is not exclusively a Pauline doctrine, okay? But it is found most often in the writings of Paul. There is no doubt about it, okay? He makes it very, very explicit, and I'm going to seek to demonstrate that for you. A lot of people think that union with so a lot of people. Some people think that the union with Christ is more central to Paul's theology than justification by faith alone. Okay? Now, I would disagree. I would say that justification by faith is the center of Paul's theology, but I would say that union with Christ or, or kind of the... Like, if justification by faith is the center wheel, I would say that union with Christ is the spokes in the wheel. 
okay, or to switch metaphors. It's kind of the the uh, the the union with Christ is what weaves together the blanket of justification by faith that stands at the center of most of Pauline theology, I would say. And so I want to give an overview of what this is today. We're going to go to high level. This is kind of like a series outline, you might say, with a little bit of explanation on each point. But my goal is to whet your appetite to start thinking about these things and get you situated within the context of some of these discussions and this topic uh, more particularly. First, is where do we get this language of union with Christ? What indicates it in the Scripture? What indicates why we call it union with Christ and where we find it in the Bible are primarily in, 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 primarily in the New Testament. That's obviously where Christ is. Um, from language like in Christ, in Him, with Him, with Christ, united with Him, and then we get we're going to look at Ephesians 5.31, which, was Joe, which is what Joe was talking about just a while ago. I'm going to give you a sampling because uh, these, you, this is ubiquitous. Ubiquitous meaning what? Sorry. <laughs> mean, someone tell me what ubiquitous means. Glenn, everywhere, yes. <laughs> you, everywhere. When you see this, once you, once you see this, my hope is once you understand this doctrine, when you read the New Testament, you're like, oh, there it is. Oh, there it is. Oh, there it is. Oh, union with Christ. Union with Christ. Union with Christ. You're going to see what a central role uh, this plays in the New Testament. Let me give you a bit of a verse dump here, just so you can hear. I think I'm, I'm pretty sure that in Christ, although it's not always in reference to the doctrine of union with Christ, but the phrase in Christ, I believe, is used, just, to, just this first one is used 91 times uh, in the New Testament. Not all of them having to do with the doctrine of union with Christ and, and other things. But just listen to this language here from passages that you probably, many of which, uh, you've probably heard of before. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. What? In Christ Jesus. The eternal life is in Christ. Is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1-2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Okay? 1 Corinthians 1-30, and because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. You're in Him who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, going to what, uh, alluding to what Glenn uh, mentioned earlier in terms of practical implications, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. In Christ, again, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Galatians 1.22, Paul was still personally unknown in, to the churches of Judea that are in Christ, he says. Galatians 2.17, you see I'm going through the Pauline corpus here, 
skipping something. I'm not going to go through all of it because there's so many examples. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, Paul says, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Certainly not. We are justified in Christ. For in Christ Jesus, he says, Galatians 5, 6, neither circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Ephesians 2.13, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor circum uncircumcision counts for anything. Oh, I just, I just repeated that. For, uh, I'm so sorry. I, that's, the wrong, that's the wrong text. My copy and paste did not work on that one. Hold on. I'm sorry about that. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Others have in him the pronoun instead of explicitly Christ. For example, Ephesians 1, 11 through 13. In him, in him, that is to say, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him, verse 13, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Philippians 3, 8 through 9. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. We're going to be found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. And that would be an example of in Christ where Christ is the object of one's faith here and not so much the doctrine of union with him. It's like I'm having faith in Christ and as a result of that I have union with Christ, but they're not, they're not exactly the same thing. So every single instance of the phrase in Christ is not an explicit reference to the particular doctrine. It could be Christ is the object of my faith. Okay, Colossians 2.11. In Him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And on and on and on, the with Christ language, the in Christ language, bolstering this doctrine of union with Christ. But that's not all. There's more. There's the with Him there's the with him language. Colossians 2, 12 and 13, having been buried with him in baptism that we talked about just earlier, buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through the faith and powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, Paul writes, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin 
For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. First Timothy, I mean, 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. He says, the saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. So with so you have the in Christ, you have the with Christ, you have the with him, in Christ, in him, with him. Then you have with Christ specifically. I have been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians 2.4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive together with Christ, specifically. If, you have, if then you have been raised with Christ, Colossians 3.1, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Colossians 3.3, 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's like the ultimate nesting box. Okay? Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then we have the phrase united with Christ, specifically for Romans 6, 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Okay, and this is putting just a different expression to everything that we have already seen over and over and over with him, with Christ, in Christ, in him, united with him. And I hope that what you have heard is, is a whole host of different things that are said to be related to being in Christ. In Christ, you were, insert like tons of meaningful doctrines, right? In Christ you were this, in Christ you were this, in Christ you were this, in Christ you were love, in Christ you were crucified, in him you were now you're see in Christ you were raised, in Christ you're seated with him in the heavenly places, in Christ, with Christ, with him, in him, over and over and over. And it seems that the blessings of the gospel are um, inextricably tied up with the, the the doctrine of union with Christ. That it's not, it doesn't seem, and this is what we're going to see in much greater clarity as we go through the series, that it's God doesn't love us outside of Christ. It's not as though Christ, some, a lot of people tend to think of it like Christ paid the, the debt, for, you know, the, the, Christ died to atone for sin, was, you know, rose from the dead, and then we repent and believe the gospel, and Christ is the one who makes that possible, and now God can love us. Now, that's like a that's true in one sense, but it's not as though Christ is the door, and once you get in the door, God loves you on the basis of something else. What I'm going to suggest is that all of the promises of the gospel and God's love for you are in light of union with Christ. Union with Christ. Okay? It's not something, Christ is not the kind of, the person who gives you entry into the kingdom and then God just indiscriminately loves everyone in the kingdom outside of what the person who uh, let them in uh, did or something like that. It's the union with Christ itself 
that conveys perseverance and assurance and, and, and you being united with Christ is why we have an inheritance. And being united with Christ is why God can love us. And being united with Christ is why we have the hope that we do. And being united with Christ is why we have new identities. And so this doctrine of union with Christ is everywhere. Turn with me in your copy of the scripture to Ephesians chapter 5. Um, this is the last passage that I want to look at in our overview. And it is, to be clear, an overview because there are many other verses that I could turn to, and probably you could too, that talk about being in Christ, in Him, with Christ, with, uh, uh, with Him. And you'll recall that uh, Ephesians chapter 5, the second half, generally gets remembered for being the wives and husbands, and, and wives submitting to husbands, and husbands uh, loving their wives. And if we start in verse 25, you read this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that she might, uh, I'm sorry, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as with as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Just pause and let me say, that's Paul explicitly saying he expects everyone to have a charitable and a healthy view of them, like take care of themselves, right? Paul expects people to take care of themselves and do, I mean, sometimes the word is abused now, but self-care, that's how he, that's the argument he makes. You know how you take care of yourself? That's how you're supposed to take care of your wife, husbands. That's what he's saying. No one ever hated his own body. He takes, you take care of yourself. Okay, so take care of yourself. He expects people to be taking care of themselves, being responsible for their bodies, their own life. Okay. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Okay, and then verse 31 is where it gets very interesting. Verse 31, therefore... Quoting Genesis 2.24, or alluding to it, right? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Okay, so up to this point, we're like, okay, we got that. I got kind of the one flesh thing. I took biology class, understood. But then, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. What? He's saying the mystery is profound. He refers to Christ and the church. There is something about the marital union that approximates some kind of union between Christ and his church. And he says this is a profound mystery. And guess what? He doesn't do anything to explain the mystery whatsoever. He says, here's a profound mystery. This is what it is. You know how a husband and wife are united together? Okay. This, is, this, is, this points us to something that's going on between Christ and his church, and it's a mystery, and then he just moves on. Which causes us to ask this second question. What is it exactly? So we've talked about being with Christ and in Christ and in him, but when you get down to the brass tacks of it, what is being in Christ? What is union with Christ exactly? What exactly are we talking about here? And what I'm going to suggest and argue over the course of this series, that is at a fundamental level, 
Union with Christ involves a kind of mystical incorporation into Christ. There is some sense that I don't understand, and neither do you, in which, in virtue of being united with Christ, that we share in something of Christ that is more than just a bare legal fiction. It is not just empty words. It is just not, it's not just a, a rhetorical flourish. It's, just, it's not just theological poetry. There is, in fact, in reality, some kind of connection, some kind of enmeshment, not psychologically for those of you, not, some kind of being together with him that is, that is real that I don't know how to explain and neither do you. It's mysterious. Okay? It is mysterious. But it is more than simply being, is more than simply words. In fact, you might think of in Adam. When we say in Adam, like we can give expression to what it means that we're in Adam. Because right? we can say something like this, we're physically descended from Adam. We're, some, we're somehow truly related to him, right? He can represent us as a covenant head, because, and we can tell a theological story about why that's the case, and then Christ is the second Adam. But when we say that we're in Adam, it's not just a rhetorical flourish. There's actually something connection, like there's some meat there that you can talk about. Okay, And in this case, it's because we were descended from Adam, and we received his corrupt nature and all the rest of it. I'm suggesting that in Christ there is something that there is something that if we were smart enough or we had the inside enough we could put teeth to and maybe one day we will but it's not just a flourish. There there is something real going on at the fundamental level. However, this is very important to realize this just like it's important to know about God's predestining work in salvation. However, um we are not responsible for understanding this mystery that Paul doesn't even care to explain. We need to know it's there, just like God's predestining work, but you don't know who God has predestined unto salvation or whatever the case may be. And so you don't go do your life based off knowledge of things that you have no, that, that, are, that are profound mysteries hidden, hidden in God, right? You, want, you need to know that they're there. You, know, you need to know that these things are behind the curtain because it changes the way you live life and you do things, but you don't press in. You're not going to know the specifics. When the New Testament talks about in Christ primarily, it is talking about in Christ at a derived level, a position by proxy. Mystical incorporation at the fundamental level, but kind of what's the upshot of that? When we talk about what's the benefits of that, what does that mean? It means something like position by proxy. So Christ died, we died. Christ was raised, we were raised. We get some kind of status that is related to Christ and what he has done for us because of this union. So where Christ goes, we go, so to speak, because we are united with him. And at this level, things are declared to be true of us that are not true in the, like, physical sense of the word. Like, for example, I understand that I'm, I've been raised, I'm seated with Christ in the heavenly... I understand that, but I'm also standing here on planet Earth, right? And so there's a sense in which I'm seated with Christ, but I understand that not to be... And I, don't get me wrong, I could be mistaken, but I understand that primarily to be a position, a, a positional declaration over me, 
and not something that is saying I'm actually in reality seated, you know, sitting somewhere else. I don't understand that to be the case. I take that to be a positional declaration over me, something like position by proxy. Because Christ is doing this, I am doing this. Okay? Um, what do you think about that? What do you think about understanding union with Christ at those two levels? Does that make sense? Yes, sir. Okay, okay, so when the Father sees the Son, He sees us in Him, right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely, good. What else? What do you think about this? Does, does this distinction between the fundamental level of union with Christ being some kind of mystical incorporation and then kind of the position by proxy resulting from that, uh, does that distinction make sense to you? Or should, could I explain it? Should I explain it a little bit more? Yeah, so I think, I have not thought of it quite like that, but I think that would be one way to get your fingers around it. Um, I think I think maybe a better, um, I don't know that it's a better way, but I think the more familiar way to talk about it is to appeal to that already, not yet kind of thing. Or that's what you're saying, right? Kind of here's the already and the not yet. Yeah, so certainly union with Christ, the position by proxy, we get things that are credited to us that we don't actually have. And the, the best example, and I'm giving away a little bit of the next session, is righteousness. We are credited with being perfectly righteous before God, even though we are in fact not. But we one day will be, right? Okay, so that's what I mean, position by proxy. Positionally, I am righteous. I'm going to say that positionally I'm righteous because of union with Christ. I'll get to that in a second. Uh, but I'm not actually righteous. So that's why I'm saying I'm declared righteous like legally and positionally, although I'm not actually righteous, but one day I will be. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, any other questions about this distinction here? Because I think it's a very critical distinction, and it's critical that you understand that it's not just two different ways to talk about it, but that the bottom one derives from the top one. The top one is the more fundamental. The bottom one derives, that is to say, it comes out of, is implied by the top line. You get the bottom line because of the top line, in other words. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about a few things that Union with Christ explains. And I only picked a sampling. You're going to see how many... You probably, as you were listening through that verse dump, you might have heard how many doctrines this touches. But let me just, let me just go through it very briefly. Um, first, Christian unity. Christian unity is affected by union with Christ because we have a common identity in a second Adam. Ironically for Christians, what is uh, most fundamental to your identity is not unique to you. Is not unique to you. Okay? And this is like to, to really use some cultural language here that makes gives some people the willies. There's this is actually where identity politics, if you're familiar with that, okay? This is like the only, I would, I would probably suggest, like the only correct version of identity politics, where your identity is bound up in being part of a group. Those who are in Christ, 
Okay? If you don't know what identity politics is, just forget that point. But there, this, but that, that's what it is. Your fundam, what's fundamental about you in this one case, I, at least I would say, okay, it's not that the individual precedes the whole. It's there's this whole, and you are defined by something that actually isn't unique to you. It's shared by everybody in the group. And that's a defining factor of who you are as a Christian. So we have common identity because of union with Christ. We're all united with the same Christ. There's only one Christ. We're all united with the same one. So we have a very deep unity through the mystical union and always, therefore, the derived uh, position by proxy. We have church as the body of Christ because we are in Christ. We are knit together as the body of Christ, and we are being built up together as people work in the body of Christ and use their gifts and all the rest. So there's a Christian unity at, at kind of an identity level, but also at a corporate level of the church because of union with Christ. And as Joe pointed out, the, because God will never leave, uh, God will never leave his bride because they are united in some sense. And there is a wedding banquet coming where consum consummation happens. So there, there's like this betrothal, but it, and, and, but at the very end, there is a consummation where what is mystical and in some sense, I'm not saying it'll be less mystical, but in some way, there will be a heightening of it and a consummation of all of it at the end of all things. And I don't know how to explain it. I'm not even going to try. I'm not even going to try to explain it. But it will be glorious and it awaits us still. Uh, so union with Christ explains justification. Now, we're going to get into this later in the series. I'm just going to mention this very quickly. There are two ways to think about justification by faith. One is, I'm the guilty person sitting over here. And Christ is in his work and all of it is sitting over here. Okay, and then God the judge is sitting in the middle. So you got that? You got the team here? Me, guilty, Christ, his work, righteous, God the judge over here. And then one version of being declared righteous is God looking at Christ and then me. And he goes, because of what he did, you over here get to be declared righteous. Okay, that would be a legal fiction understanding. Now, legal, it sounds bad. It doesn't mean it's not some, some liberal term or anything like that. Legal fiction just means it's just not actually true. There's nothing substantive at all. It is merely saying, you get credit for him because I said so. Okay, that's one understanding. What I'm going to argue for is that union with Christ actually gives a little bit more meat to justification by faith. So instead of here's the Father and here's Christ the righteous and here's me over here, the way we should probably think about it is here's God the Father, here's me, the guilty one, but guess what? I'm united with Christ, right, over here. And so when he looks over at me, to use the visual language, he sees his son over there and that union with Christ is the basis upon which I am declared righteous, there's actually something there, the mystical union. That's why we talked about it. There is, a, uh, there is an aspect of being united with Christ that justifies, uh, that, 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 uh, that justifies God's declaration of righteousness over me as opposed to a bare legal fiction. We'll return to that. But it has implications, serious implications, I would say, for justification by faith. And, and if you're confused about that or think, is that some kind of, does that sound like infused righteousness or some? That's not it. That's not it at all. It's just it's going to provide a more of a foundation for justification by faith. We'll get there later. It provides us future hope for reasons that we've already talked about. God will never stop loving Christ if we're in Christ. It means He'll never stop loving us. But He always loves us in Christ. 
So if you're under the misconception that God loves you outside of Christ because of a past act that Christ did, instead of that God's love for you is always love in Christ because of union with Christ, then you're not going to have the same assurance or hope. You're not going to have you're not going to be able to appeal to this in the same way. Finally, it guarantees us resurrection because Christ has already been resurrected from the dead and he is the first fruits of what is to come. So if we are united with Christ and he's already been resurrected, that's the we are and we're seated with him. We've been we've passed from death to life like we're going to see in the sermon. We've been resurrected as well in an already sense. We will be resurrected in the not yet sense in the future. How does it aid sanctification? This is the one that I, I think was a little bit uh, more challenging. And that is, in the, with the doctrine of union with Christ, we get to focus on becoming who we have already been declared to be. We get to focus on becoming the person we've already been declared to be. So to use an analogy... Um, if you found out, maybe not yet, hold on, wait, let me just, this is what happens when you don't script your analogies, you're like, whoa, could I use this one? So let me, let's just say it like this, it's not going to be a perfect one, but let's suppose that you found out that you were actually, let's say we're back at hundreds of years ago, let's say you found out you were living a regular life uh, as a working, uh, maybe as a blacksmith, say, but you found out that you were actually uh, a prince. An heir, you found out you were heir to the throne. Okay? Now, you weren't actually on the throne. In fact, you weren't even in the palace. But you were, but because of who you were, but because of who you were, that's where you were headed and that's where you belonged. You could pardon the person who all of a sudden started to carry themselves a little bit differently. They knew what was theirs, and they knew what they could go rightfully. They, can, they knew what they could rightfully claim, and they knew what was coming to them. So guess what they could do? They could start becoming who they've been declared to be. You've heard this expression, dress for the job you want, not the job that you have, right? Probably everyone's heard that. Okay. Um, and there's some really funny jokes about that one that I won't tell, but uh, especially in the work-from-home culture. But... Um, but the idea is you've been declared to be something. You've been declared to be something. We saw this in 1 John a couple of weeks ago that the process, right? The process of the Christian life has the same quality as the end goal, which is purity and holiness. That's been declared over us because of union with Christ. We are positionally perfectly righteous before God. And that is, in fact, what motivates us to become actually more righteous people in the run of life. Okay? Finally, we have the freedom to sin, but the desire not to. Now, when I say freedom to sin, just let me explain, right? I don't mean that it's okay for you to go sin. I mean because of union with Christ, sin does not call you, cause you to fall out of a state of grace, like I was talking about with a brother last night. A certain view, certainly in the in the Catholic tradition, where uh, if I have a certain kind of sin in the, in the Catholic tradition, a, a mortal sin, all of a sudden I'm out of a state of grace. I've got to go confess. I've got to take mass. I have essentially my my sin, my sin washed away again, atoned for again by the blood, the body, physical body and blood of Jesus there in the mass, confession of the priest, all the rest of it. 
Union with Christ says, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. If I'm united with Christ, how, 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 how does that union fall apart? That doesn't even make sense. You know, it, it doesn't make sense. The two are united together. And what is his, in one sense, becomes ours. Therefore, when we sin, because we are not actually righteous, we'll still sin, um, we don't have to worry that our whole salvation has been shipwrecked. And we don't have to worry that God is up there so disappointed that we're on his team today. Yesterday, you know, we need, today God's putting us on the bench. Yesterday, when we were you know, throwing touchdown passes, he was like, I'm so glad they're on my team. But today... They're really having a stinker, and so I'm going to put them on the, and apologize to the angels that they're up here. No, union with Christ gives a kind of security that I don't want to sin. I want to become more like who I've been declared to be, but at the same time, I know that if I sin, and this is 1 John 2, 1, isn't it? Little children, I write to you so that you do not sin, but if you do sin, we have a, a, an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous. It's that dynamic right there. I don't want to sin. What I want to do is run after holiness, and if in my, in my flesh I sin, I have an advocate with the Father. Union with Christ guarantees me, guarantees that I'll have the desire to not sin, but when I do, I will not be compromising anything about my eternal status or anything like that, or even the love of God, because God never stops loving Christ. And again, think I want you to think about that. If God, If Christ is just the door you get into, Think how that affects performance identity in the Christian life. Okay, so now I kind of didn't, I, I didn't do my quiet time or whatever it is this day or whatever, and now I'm feeling crummy about it. Okay, but, 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 but if Christ, if you think of it as, well, God's pleasure with me is in Christ, okay, it's still true that I can sin, I can grieve the Spirit of God, but ultimately, His ultimate pleasure is in His Son, which I am, who I am united to. And that doesn't change on a day-to-day -day basis. It doesn't change on a day-to-day -day basis. I think some of us want to live such quality of life that we kind of earn the pleasure of God. We want to hear God doing this. And don't get me wrong, there is a place for well-done, good, and faithful servant. I'm not saying there's not a place for that. There is a place for laboring well and living a righteous life that is a fragrant offering, pleasing to God. All about it, okay? So, but... Because God's fundamental pleasure with us is based on His Son, and we continue to be united with Him, that means that there is an abiding sense in which God will love us, and that God will have not just a tolerance for us, but an affection for us no matter what happens, because He loves us in Christ with Him. Okay, we're right at 945. I landed it, uh, I landed it perfectly. Again, my, my goals were to, say, to stir you up, say, wow, there's a lot here in this doctrine. There is a lot in union with Christ, theologically, practically. I mean, there is so much to be explored. And over the course of the next couple of weeks, I want to give you a guided tour of union with Christ, where we see it in the Scripture, why it matters, what doctrines it touches, so that you can read the New Testament uh, through a new lens. And as we go through this series, and you go through your time in the Word, especially if you're Paul, I think you're going to start seeing it crop up. Now that we've pointed it out, it's going to be that thing like you can't stop seeing. With Christ, in Christ, with Him. And you're going to see how fundamental this is uh, uh, in uh, Paul's theology. So let's pray and let's ask God to bless this series as we continue through it. Lord Jesus, we are thankful to be in union with Christ. We're thankful um, to be seated with Christ in the heavenly places, to be hidden with Christ in God, to be predestined in Christ, to be loved with Christ, to have been crucified with 
Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that you would comfort our souls and help us take great delight in whom we, in the person of Christ in whom we have our identity and our being. We pray that we would, as a result, become what we have declared to be. We pray your blessing on this series. Please bless us as we continue to worship you this morning in this church. In Jesus' name.